Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. First off, I just want to say that as of today, you can now listen to all the podcasts on YouTube. So just go to YouTube and search for Beach House 34 and it should come up. Uh, Please subscribe. You can uh, click the little bell so that you're notified every single time a new episode becomes available. Um, I do want to make it clear, though, that this does not mean that the episodes are not going to be available on all of the podcast platforms. They are. This is just an additional way uh, to be able to listen and to make it a little bit easier on a few people. A second, since Thanksgiving is this week, happy Thanksgiving, um, I thought that I'd give you a little Thanksgiving true crime story. So with that said, let's get on with it. Linda and Steve Privicky were at a loss. They had been having problems with one of their sons, and they were deeply concerned about his behavior. Their son, Seth, uh, was found to have been stoning cars, so throwing stones at cars, at a local elementary school. He also frequently caused issues at an amusement park that was just behind the Privicky's home. He had been caught shoplifting, and his high school grades were failing. Both Seth and his brother, Jed, also worked together at a local grocery store, but the owner of the store said that they were quite different. Seth didn't work as hard as Jed, and Seth was often found in the back of the store reading comic books. Seth's dad also had a habit of showing up at the store and reprimanding Seth for his shortcomings. And that's just crazy to me. You're you're 15 years old, you have a job, Here's your dad showing up uh, yelling at you while you're at work. Now, I'm not excusing his behavior, but I mean, Seth's behavior as to how he's acting. But um, that's just crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to a 15-year-old? Nonetheless, I digress. The owner of the grocery store had said, um, I didn't think that Seth lived up to what his parents wanted him to be. The Privickys were a nice family, but you always knew that there was trouble underlying. I think the older brother was the good one, meaning Jed, and Seth was the bad one in the family. Now, Seth was fired from this grocery store in November of 1995, and again, he was around 15 years old. He had been caught stealing beer and then selling it to minors. He was actually still on juvenile probation, when he was charged with yet another misdemeanor theft and was awaiting trial for this charge. And this charge happened when he was about 17 years old and because of his age, he was actually being charged as an adult. Now for this second misdemeanor, he was ordered to attend counseling and to take an antidepressive drug. A friend of Seth's parents said that Linda, Seth's mom, didn't know what she was going to do with Seth. He was out of control, and she felt like he was heading for really big trouble. Steve Privicky, Seth's dad, had told a friend that he was concerned that Seth had no conscience, 
that he only thinks of himself and he doesn't care about others. The parents sought out medical and psychological help for Seth. Um, He was obviously now taking antidepressants and Steve believed that it was helping. But both Linda and Steve, however, were still concerned and they were fearful of their own son. The Privikis had actually just sold their current house, and they were in the process of building a new one. Now, because of the problems that Seth had caused them in the past, uh, together with the fact that he was 18 and now legally an adult, they decided that when they moved into this new house, Seth would not be coming with them. Their plan was to tell Seth this information on Thanksgiving. Why they chose to do it on a holiday and with potentially the entire family present uh, seemed to me like it would just create more drama where drama wasn't really needed. But nonetheless, when the day came around, around noon that day, and while the Thanksgiving meal is still cooking, Seth's mom and dad tell Seth that he cannot move with them to the new house and that he needs to move out. We don't know exactly how the conversation went uh, because Seth uh, never talked about it. But what we do know is that after Seth was told he had to move out, he walked upstairs to his dad's closet. He grabbed his dad's 22 caliber pistol. He put in a clip and then he headed back downstairs, hiding the gun behind his back. Shortly after this, Seth's mom decides she's going to go jump in the shower. And his dad had left to go pick up Seth's grandfather, John. Seth's older brother, Jed, who was 19, was the only one home. He was sitting on the couch in the living room watching television. Seth walked in behind him and just simply shot him in the back of the head. With his mom still in the shower and his dad gone, no one heard the shot. Seth then drug Jed's body into the basement so that no one would see it. When Seth came back upstairs from the basement, he then heard his dad's car pull into the driveway. As the two, Seth's dad and his grandfather, make their way into the house, Seth shoots both his dad and his grandfather in the back of the head. Seth's grandfather, John, had then been shot a second time because the first shot didn't instantly kill him. The last person left was Seth's mom. She is still upstairs in the bathroom. As Seth heads up the stairs and heads to where she is, his mom is just getting out of the shower. He walks up behind his mom and he shoots her in the back of the head. Now, what Seth didn't know was that Jed had invited his girlfriend, April, over for Thanksgiving, thinking Seth thought he had the whole situation under control. So he walks downstairs and surprisingly, he finds April walking into the kitchen. So he kind of stalks April a little bit, walks up behind her and shoots her in the back of the head. It was later learned that the day before the shootings, Seth had talked with his friend Stephen about killing his dad. 
he was so serious about this that on that same day that he talked with Stephen, he was caught on surveillance camera trying to buy bullets from a local store. He got as far as checkout when the clerk refused to sell him the bullets because he wasn't old enough. He had to be 21 and he, of course, was 18. But not to be dissuaded by any stretch of the imagination, he again tried to go back a few hours later to the same place, same place, and again was told, hey, you cannot buy these, you are not old enough, so Seth then leaves. Now back at the house, after Seth had gone through this rampage, um, he called his friend Stephen, and he said, it's done, I did it. And he wanted Stephen to come over to help clean up the house. The plan was to take all of the bodies somewhere and bury them. So what they do is they get together and they decide to wrap up all of the bodies into bed sheets. And after this was done, both of them realized that, hey, these bodies are way too heavy to move. So what they decide to do instead is to make the house look like someone had broken into it and instead just killed everyone. So Stephen, now this was early afternoon. So this was about 1.30ish and uh, Stephen was over there, but he had to go. He early in the evening had something going on. He actually had a church youth group party, but he promised, he promised Seth that he would be back later. Seth then gives Stephen the gun to get rid of it, and Stephen leaves Seth's house, and he drives about 10 miles away, where he then throws the gun and its clip into a pond. Stephen then goes to Blockbuster Video and returns a rented movie before heading home and then going to his church youth group event. At no time does he ever say or stop or bother to think to tell anybody what has just happened at Seth's house. Now, while Stephen is gone, Seth goes around the house and he picks up all of these spent shell casings. He then drives to a local gas station and he throws them into a garbage can. After this, he then goes to a local store to grab some duct tape so that he and Stephen could tape up the bodies, making it look like a robbery. So later that night, it's around 11 to midnight, Stephen is back at Seth's house, and they both start to clean up the crime scene. Seth is near the front of the house and near the garage, but kind of in the driveway, and he's hovering over his dad when a car pulls into the driveway, and it happened to be April's parents. April hadn't shown up for work, and they were concerned, and rightly so, so they went to the Privicky home, hoping that they would find her there. When Seth saw the car, He took off running and he ran into the house and then out the back door into the woods behind his house. Now, April's parents, in the meantime, they see this. They see this guy looking over another guy and somebody just takes off. They're like, oh my gosh, something is wrong. They call the police, say, hey, you need to get over here. So when the police arrive, they actually find Stephen right away. They discover then that the man... Uh, that was in the driveway that Seth was hovering over was Steve Privicky, uh Seth's dad, who was 50. The police then go into the house and they find all of the rest of the victims. Uh, Seth's mom, Linda, 49. Of course, his brother, Jed, who is 19. Uh, Jed's girlfriend, April, who was also 19. And his grandfather, John, who was 78. According to police, there was blood everywhere 
inside the home. And it was apparent that the victims were killed, quote, execution style. And they seem to have been done in a quick spree. Police also found bloody clothing and a television that the police believed Seth and Stephen were going to take with them to make it appear as though it were a robbery. Now, no weapon was found at the scene, but police said that they had some information as to where it might be. Now, this information most likely came from Stephen, who had already been apprehended. And of course, he's the one who had driven the gun and tossed it into the pond. Police begin the search for Seth um, in the woods behind his house. Even dogs were brought in to help locate uh, Seth. But after looking for some time, the dogs lost his scent. Now, the next day, a classmate of Seth's, uh, Jana, she had pulled over to pick up Seth as he was hitchhiking in the rain. Now, Jana had been a classmate of Seth's since she was five. Now, at the time, Jana had pulled over not knowing it was Seth who was hitchhiking. Uh, we're not quite sure uh, who she might have thought it was, uh, why she had pulled over, um, but she had actually just learned the day before about what had happened at Seth's house. And she knew that the police were looking for him. So Seth gets in her car and Jana does her best to act as normal as possible. Uh, they don't say a lot, uh, but he does ask if she could take him to a particular location. Jana said that the whole time that they were in the car, he acted like nothing had happened. So Jana did the same thing. After she dropped him off where he wanted to go, she then drove to a nearby house and asked to use their phone where she then called 911. The police found Seth at the same location where Jana had dropped him off, which happened to be inside a barn where he and some friends of his had practiced as a rock band. Seth was arrested. Uh, he was still soaking wet, still shaking. He did not resist arrest. And at this point in time, no one knows why these killings occurred. A neighbor of the Privigies uh, said that, quote, both Seth and Jed were nice and quiet, not bold in any way. They'd never been in trouble as far as they knew. They weren't aware of any trouble until sheriff's deputies came to their door and told them to keep their lights off. Now, at this point, we obviously know that Seth has been a problem child for some time. So it just leads you to think that, um, you know, all the problems that they were having, they really just kind of kept within the family. They didn't discuss it a whole lot, except for maybe the close friends that we had talked about before. A day after Seth was arrested, uh, both he and Stephen confessed to all of the killings. But the reason that Seth gave for killing his family was that he was mad because his father had threatened to kick him out of the house. Seth said that he shot all five people point blank in the head and then he moved the bodies around with Stephen's help so that it looked like a robbery. Now, Seth was interviewed by Sergeant Dennis Edwards of the Muskegon County Sheriff's Department. The Muskegon Chronicle published a portion of this interview um, and it was a transcript that they published of Seth's confession. And this is what he said. Okay. If you can start from, ah, uh, just prior to the incident, what led up to the incident? If I have any questions, I'll stop you. Okay, me and my dad never really got along the last five or six years and we'd always argue, just stupid stuff, and my mom would take his side no matter what, she'd always take his side, 
It's just been getting worse the past six months. When he talked to me, he just yelled at me, never had anything positive to say to me. I used to be real close to my brother, we used to get along so well. In the past six months to a year he was beginning to take sides with my parents more. He used to tell me how bad I was doing in school, that I wasn't going to go anywhere in life. And then on Sunday, my parents told me that they didn't love me anymore. Which one told you that they didn't love you anymore? My father told me that he didn't love me anymore. Okay. And that he wanted me to move out. He didn't want me to live there anymore. My mom and brother didn't say anything. What happened then? Out of anger and rage I went upstairs in my dad's closet and got his 22 caliber pistol and loaded the clip and went downstairs. And my dad had left. We was supposed to eat dinner at 1.30. This was about quarter after 1. I came up behind my brother. He was sitting in the living room. And I shot him once in the back of the head and I dragged his body downstairs so no one would see it. And then my dad got home with my grandpa. I didn't know my grandpa was supposed to be here. But, when they got in the door, I shot them both in the back of the head. Where were you at the time when they came in the door? I was in the living room and I heard the car pull up so I knew they were coming in and... Okay, did you hide somewhere when they came in the door? No, I acted like I was just walking out the door and I had the gun behind my back and they were facing the opposite direction and I shot him in the back of the head. And then I shot my grandpa again because he wasn't dead yet. What happened after that? Um, my mom was in the shower while this was taking place, and then she had just gotten out of the shower, and I went upstairs and I went in the bathroom and shot her in the back of the head. And then when I was coming back downstairs April came through the front door before I could stop her. And she saw my grandpa and dad. And she thought it was just a joke. She walked into the kitchen and I shot her in the back of the head. I didn't know she was going to come to dinner. What happened after that? Then I called Steve because I didn't know what to do. What did you tell Steve? I told him I killed my family. And he was just in shock and I asked him to come over. I asked him to come over and he did. He came over like a half an hour later. I begged him to help me clean up. Did he help you clean up? At first he didn't want to, but I begged him and used our friendship against him. Okay, and what did you do at the time? I asked him to get rid of it for because he was leaving. After we cleaned up the bodies downstairs, we wrapped them up in sheets. He took as little involvement as he could. I can't understand you. He took as little involvement. As he could. He did, I did most of the work. He just. Um, why did you wrap the bodies in sheets? Because I was gonna bury them. Where were you going to bury them at? I hadn't decided. What happened after that? We wrapped the bodies up. We wrapped my grandpa, my dad, April in sheets and we dragged them outside in the workshop off the garage and left them there. Steve had to go, get back. He didn't tell his parents where he was going. He took the gun with him and I don't know where he threw it. He didn't tell me, I didn't want to know. And then? And then I cleaned up all the blood downstairs. How do you clean up the blood downstairs? With towels and rags. What did you do with the rags and stuff? Threw them in garbage bags and put them all in the workshop. Okay, and then what happened? And then I cleaned up the downstairs to make it look like nothing happened, at first glance. Okay, and where was Steve while you were cleaning up downstairs? He went back to his house. And he went to a church group, youth group meeting or something like that that night. And I asked him if he could come back after that and help me and he said he would. And we came back later that night. I left to go over to my friend's house, because I couldn't be there. And I picked him up at his girlfriend's house later that night after he got dropped off by his friends and we went back to my house. We cleaned up all the stuff. We couldn't get the bodies out. Why not? Too heavy. We couldn't lift them. Okay. So we just decided to leave them where they lay and make it look like a robbery. Okay. What did you do to make it look like a robbery? We took all the sheets off them and put them in plastic bags, thinking I'd burn those, 
put them in the trunk of the car, and we were gonna take the TV and VCR and stereo and make it look like somebody just robbed the place. What happened then? Then we made every, bagged it up in the trunk. We noticed a car pull up, so I quick ran out and shut the trunk and ran back inside and we went out the slider door. And we were looking out through the back garage door just to see who it was. And I thought it was a cop so we both ran. We ran across to the empty lot next door and we waited for a couple of minutes and then I decided to go back and check to make sure it was a cop. And then I went back and it was. And I was making my way back, I was walking down the road to where Steve was at and there was a car coming down the road so I jumped in a ditch just to make sure it wasn't another cop and it was and I saw his sirens go off. About 15-20 yards before the spot where Steve was hiding, so I thought they saw him and I just ran back in the woods. I didn't know what to do. I ran back to the spot to where he was and I didn't see him anywhere so I went a little further ways back in the woods and I was looking for him and I couldn't find him. And then I just went back a little further and waited to see what was going to happen. I could see cop cars going up and down the road. And then I made my way across the creek. I was gonna circle around the house to see what was going on from the other neighbor's yard. And then I heard dogs and I knew they were search dogs and they were gonna start searching for us so I ran. I ran straight to Whitehall Road and across Duck Lake Road and down Duck Lake and then I turned on Gibson and then I could hear dogs following so I kept running and ran across the golf course and I circled back around and came back up on Duck Lake again. And then from there I just made my way west, crossing over roads, crisscrossing my direction. I could always hear dogs and see lights and I would always avoid them and keep making my way west. And then I got to Weber Road and I couldn't hear any more dogs and I couldn't see any police cars so I thought I lost them. So I kept going north a couple of blocks and the around where Weber meets Riley Thompson again I just laid down and tried to sleep under a pine tree. And then I woke up the next morning and I stayed there for a few hours and I thought that they weren't pursuing me anymore. So I was going to make my way back to Jason Fitz's house where I planned to commit suicide. But no one was home so I went in the back pole barn and waited for them to come home and the police found me and arrested me. So, is there anything further that you would like to say? How do you feel about what you did? I feel awful. I wished I'd never done it. It was all a mistake. I take it back a thousand times. When I ran, it wasn't to get away. In a way it was to get away so I could kill myself cause I couldn't live with myself for doing this to my family. Did you buy any ammunition? No. Did you steal some ammunition? No. Why did you go to the store to get ammunition? Cause I plan on going small game hunting on Sunday. I never thought about killing my parents until that morning. Okay. This statement is concluded at approximately 1.51 p.m. Police also said that his confession was flat and it was like no one was home. Seth told police that his father, Steve, had never had anything positive to say to him and it was as if his brother and his mom had turned on him too. Evidently, when Seth was done making this statement, he did cry, um, but I guess during more of this statement that was not published. He tried to blame his brother and his brother Jed, and he said that it was a murder-suicide pact gone wrong. Now, Seth faces five counts of murder. His friend Stephen faces the same charges as Seth does, and the judge sets bail at $5 million each. Uh, They were both considered extremely dangerous. Now, while in jail, Seth, he sits down, he writes this letter to one of their high school rock band members. And he tells this member to take a recording of their music to local radio stations. He said, quote, make sure 
that you make it clear that Steve and me are in the band. This is our chance to make it big. So because they've been arrested and arrested for murder that, hey, take this because people are going to love it. They're going to want to hear it because, ooh, now you're celebrities. I I don't get that. About a month later, Seth's friend, Stephen, uh, he did have the murder charges against him dropped. Um, he actually wasn't involved in the murders. Instead, he was charged with being an accessory after the fact and charged with using a firearm in a felony. He will receive a sentence of up to five years for the accessory charge and an additional two years for the firearms charge. This is what he's being charged with. Now, Seth, on the other hand, in May of 1999, he headed to court and he pled no contest to five counts of first-degree murder. Of course, the families were happy about this because this meant no trial, means they didn't have to sit through all the proceedings and listen to all of the the gory details about what happened to their loved ones. Uh, When it came time for sentencing, Seth got life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, Stephen, however, he did have a trial. And after four and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found Stephen innocent on five counts of being an accessory to murder and of using a firearm. So Seth is in jail for life. Stephen is free to go. Uh, While incarcerated, uh, Seth makes this statement that uh, he had become a Christian and he confessed. And uh, he said he had started to experiment with alcohol and marijuana when he was 14 and then LSD and speed by the time he was 16. Starts talking about how he started selling drugs to support himself and his habit and so forth. Now, at this point, he's just in jail. He was actually transferred to the state prison system, which is quite different. Um, There were different rules and a different way of life. According to a quote by Seth, quote, prison is viewed by the convicts as a predator-prey environment where the strong take advantage of the weak. I've been involved in fights and assaults. I have extorted other convicts for money, and I was involved in the drug trade. Now, Seth at one time was caught using a tattoo gun, and so they moved him into segregation for a week. A week later, he was returned to a two-man cell, but less than 48 hours later, an officer found a razor blade among his belongings. So Seth ended up spending four months in segregation this time. While Seth had been in prison, he had 29 misconducts for theft, fighting, assaulting another prisoner, possession of a weapon, substance abuse, and gambling. He then says that he's come to terms with the fact that he was going to die in prison And it was a struggle for him, but through reading God's word, I found a glimmer of peace and comfort. Now, in 2010, Seth has been in prison now at Kinross Correctional Facility in Michigan uh, for just over 10 years. This same year, three men from the prison overpowered a man who was driving a tractor trailer just after nine o'clock in the morning. They then took the truck and crashed it through a double chain link fence that was topped with razor wire. I mean, I'm sure you can picture what the outside of a jail or a prison would look like. They take this truck, they drive it through, 
The truck had actually only gone about 100 yards when all of the men jumped out and started to run. Now, one of these three men was Seth Privicky. Now, of course, the place is going crazy. The guards are shouting. The sirens are going off. The guards are, you know, hollering at them, stop, stop, stop. After doing all of this, uh, Seth did not stop and ended up being shot to death. He was 30. The other two inmates surrendered. According to the warden, uh, the fence did its job. You know, of course, it caught the two, and and unfortunately, they lost a life, but uh, the three did not escape. And that is the story of the short life of Seth Privicky and what he did, how he tried to escape, and how it eventually ended up. So that's the Thanksgiving true crime story for this year. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Um, I know I say that all the time. I know I do, but I truly am grateful for each and every one of you. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a like. If you aren't already subscribed, either through your favorite podcast platform or through YouTube, please consider doing so. It helps give give the show a little bit of a boost and thank you again and until next week keep your guard up and uh, try not to pass along any really bad news during thanksgiving dinner (laughs) moral of the story we'll talk next time